Well, good morning. We're going to continue uh, today. This will be the last in the series on the Households of Strength from the Households of Strength Seminar. And I've decided to conclude with this session on the subject of making your home a place of delight-directed study for everyone, not just for children, but for everyone, and not just for your own family, but for everyone that chooses uh, to participate. I remind you that God is good and that his mercies are new every morning, that he is a God who knows exactly how we are designed and made, and therefore he's able to respond to all that he has made us to be. Now, I want to point out as we begin here that every human need manifests itself as a God-given appetite for something good. And the satisfaction of every God-given appetite is a source of great pleasure to us. Now, it didn't have to be that way, but it is that way because God is good. I mean, think about it. We have the ability, the remarkable ability to see in living color. Okay? I don't know if some of you were around when color television came on the scene. It was dramatic. Okay? All of a sudden, everybody was in full color. Well, think about this. Not all the animals have the ability to see in color. But God must have looked at a sunset and thought, you know, that is so beautiful. It's expensive, but let's just go for it. Let's give them color, color sight, so they can enjoy this beautiful sunset as well. There's so many things that we need in life. And you will notice that the satisfaction of each of those needs is a great uh, joy to us. We enjoy uh, the satisfaction of those desires because the desires are put there by God for our good. Now, we're talking about education here today. And so I want you to stop and ask yourself, what would it cost to provide a boarding school education for your children? So I went and looked around and found a few websites uh, on uh, really nice boarding schools. And one of the ones that I found was the Baylor School uh, in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. There's a campus right there. Uh, it was founded in 1893 as a co-educational prep school right there on the outskirts of Chattanooga, Tennessee. So what do you think it costs? This is K-12, yeah. $59,000, pretty close. $57,340 per year. Per year. Now, you, if you want to save a little money, uh, you can go. Let's see, what, let me get the name of it here. There is another school uh, that is a competitor of uh, them. And where, did it, where is it now? Oh, come on now. Eh. I lost the name of it. Oh, well. It's only $54,955 a year. Now, what do you think is a reasonable budget for homeschooling? 
for a year. Yeah, I've got 2,000 as an average. And that's if you're buying your curriculum by the pound, okay? Uh, you don't need uh, as much money. But think about what does a boarding school offer you? It offers you uh, a lot of interaction with the faculty. You're, it's a live-on campus. So you're there 24 hours a day, and you're interacting with your fellow students constantly, and interacting with the faculty constantly. It's a total way of life, living on that campus. Uh, you get a lot of personal attention in your instruction. And the teachers notice when you're ready to go on to the next thing, or when you're bored, or, or when you're not being challenged enough. They notice that, and they adjust everything to, to respond to those needs. Well, that is what you get when you homeschool. Homeschooling is boarding school education for the rest of us. Okay? Uh, we, we don't have the $57,000 a year, but we do have the ability to uh, make sacrifices, you know, often you have a mom staying home and not working, but the consequences of this decision are huge. If you manage your household as a place of delight-directed, home-based study and instruction for everyone in the family, not just for the children, you can have all that the boarding school has to offer for just a fraction of the cost. Now, in Deuteronomy, in chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, we find that this way of life is actually a commandment. We're told, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now notice, it starts in your heart. We're going to get into that in a bigger way in a moment. And then you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them. Now, teaching diligently, the word diligently has the connotations of sweat. Okay? You teach it in a way that brings sweat to your brow. You're working at it. But then having worked at teaching diligently, you follow up with that by talking about these things when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way. Uh, we could add when you drive, when you're riding in the car, uh, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Again, it's a way of life. It's not a program, it's a lifestyle. And the result of that is that home-based education is one of those old paths that we've been told is where the good way is, and this is where we find rest for our souls. So many problems in our lives today can be traced to the impact of trying to use outside agencies, outside institutions, outside organizations uh, to provide what used to be the normal responsibility of a, of a household, not just a Christian household, just a household. We have walked away from that picnic basket with all those goodies, and now we feel like we've gone too far to go back, but we haven't. God tells us, ask for the old paths where the good way is, and you'll find rest for your soul. And so for those who are living in the season of the scholar, uh, based on this principle of the seasons of life, the household is going to be a place of study. It's a place to learn. And we want to focus not just on children, but also on the rest of the family as well. But let's start off by looking more closely at the children. So, you got a nice quiver full of arrows there. Those are really nice arrows. Can I, uh, can I see them? Can, 
you mind if I aim them for you? You know? Now, we should never be surprised if we are wounded by the members of our own household if we have allowed an enemy to aim our arrows for us. You know, they have a way of pointing them at us rather than uh, pointing them at targets that we would have chosen. So I want you to be wise to manage your household as a place of study and instruction for your children. And it's in Psalm 127 and verses 4 through 5 that we find this reference to children being like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Now this has gotten a lot of attention in the media in the, over the last decade or so as they, uh, you know, they take issue with the idea of a quiver full of arrows. Well, we didn't make that up. That's in the Bible. That is part of God's word. So your argument is with God, not with us. But it says, Behold, children are heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. So somewhere in your youth or childhood, you must have done something, and God is rewarding you. And there they are. Now that might feel a little odd, but you know, our children really are a reward. And we are told that they are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So children have been issued to us by God in the same way that a, a rifle would be issued to a soldier at, in time of battle. And, and you were told, you know, take care of this. You know, keep it clean. You know, be ready. You never know when you're going to need this. Our children are given to us, and we should have the attitude of a warrior in that God's purpose for our children is not just to provide us with comfort, although they do. It's not just to provide us with security in our old age, although they do. Our children are there in order to be used by God to hit targets that are strategic in his battle plan. And so in order for us to do that, well, we've got to sharpen them. This was not an age of manufactured arrows coming out of a factory. Every arrow had its unique bent, and the warrior had to take that bent into consideration when he aimed the arrow. In order to hit the target, he might have to aim it a little bit off the target, knowing that it'll go over and hit. So we want to work on the point of the arrow, so it's got a good sharp point. That might be the intellectual training of the child. And we want to make sure that the fletching on the other end of the arrow is nice and straight and, and just in perfect alignment. And we might think of that as working on the back end of the arrow, right? Making sure that we've got some character development there and some, some uh, ability to, to fly straight and go, go where you're aimed. But it goes on to say, How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They, and that's referring to those children, they will not be ashamed when they, those children, speak with their enemies in the gates. Notice it's plural. It's not speaking to the guy who's the warrior. It's referring to the arrows that have hit their targets. So what is the gate of the city? It's the city hall of the day. This psalm begins by saying, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. And then it tells us God is in this project. He is building the house. He is guarding the city. And so you go to get your sleep. You go to sleep at night. Don't stay awake worrying about whether God can handle things. We begin by building a house. And we end by guarding a city. And we may not even be there to see the results of our life's work. 
We may have gone to be with the Lord, but the children are there standing in the city hall of the day, speaking with their enemies in the gates of the city. And the implication is prevailing. Now, I believe the way to raise up kids that will go the distance and hit the targets that God has chosen for their lives is by honoring the principles of Proverbs 13 and verse 20. He who walks with the wise becomes wise. So the first step in success in homeschooling is for you to be wise. If you're going to be a companion of your children, we want to make sure that you're going to be a good influence. So we want you to grow up. We want you to gain the knowledge and the skill that you need in order to be the companion that they need. Now, when we send our kids off to a conventional school situation, not just public school, uh, it's not unusual to find damage done where attitudes are affected. I, I love this picture. I wish I could get a higher res version of it. But it says, everybody smile. And uh, we got a young lady here who's not smiling. In fact, she's clenching her Statue of Liberty foam rubber hat and squeezing it. And she's saying, I hate my family. And why does she have this dark lipstick on? And, and I mean, she's obviously, oh, look at the bracelet she's wearing. This girl's got some weird friends, okay? She's got some weird friends. And among her friends, she's cool. This attitude is cool among her friends. You see, friendship has a way of making things that are not wise seem wise. To make things that are foolish seem like they're just the greatest thing. And so the companion of fools, we're told, will suffer harm. That's in the same proverb. Those who walk with the wise will become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And it is not easy to undo the influence of a child's foolish companions. And so I want to encourage you to follow this simple advice. Make decisions for your children that they will thank you for when they're 30. You've got to live for that day, someday, when they're 30 years old and they turn to you and say, Mom, Dad, thank you for not letting me do what I wanted to do when I was a teenager. Thank you for not just looking the other way and saying, well, maybe that's just a phase they'll go through. Because they'll have friends that they can see the consequences of foolish companionship, the broken marriages, the addictions, the poverty, the pregnancies, all the things that come with being the companion of fools. So homeschooling is not just for your kids or your grandkids. Homeschooling is for everybody. If you're at home, you should make your home a place of study for yourself and instruction for others who are willing to listen. Adult education is not always going to require you taking a college course. There are many educational goals that can be achieved simply by reading the right books, attending the right seminars, applying what you've learned in some simple way that is just for your own personal enrichment, without regard for getting a, a diploma or, or getting a degree. You know, I am so frustrated when I see people going off to school and paying so much money to get so many courses that have so little to do with what they want to do in life. You know, the challenge is to uh, just get what you need to go where you want to go. Education should be purchased in the same way we purchase a vehicle. If you're never going to go off-road, then don't waste money on a big Humvee, okay? You can just get some little 
economy car and puts around town, don't need to waste all them. You know, if we bought groceries the way we buy education, uh, we'd be going to the grocery store and saying, I don't really know what I want. Will you just fill four carts for me and I'll pay you for it? In fact, I'll go get a loan if you like and, uh, and, I'll, and, and pay you for the next 20, 30 years. So it's ridiculous. Education should be purchased with goals in mind. Where do you want to go? What vehicle do you need? Are there any gatekeeping mechanisms you need to satisfy? I know I don't want to go across a bridge built by somebody who is just delight-directed study. You know, I want to know this guy knows his math and passes all these tests and, you know, he's a real engineer, right? I don't want to drive across a bridge that was made by a hobbyist. But there are a lot of things in life that don't require you to be an engineer, that don't require certification. And so you need to see education as being for your personal enrichment and not just in order to achieve a, a career goal. So how can we get our children and ourselves to study effectively? This is where we get into the scriptures in a much more, I think, uh, amazingly enlightening way. The Bible provides an answer for this issue of how do I get myself to study? And uh, we find it, uh, interestingly, in the story of Adam. Adam was a delight-directed scholar, okay? going to show you where that is. And God is good, and Adam was having a great time. Okay, now here's some artist's edition of Adam. Now we read in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 19 through 20, and the Lord God formed every beast, okay, and then, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man gave names to every beast, and whatever he named them, that, would be, that became his name. Now, what I want to point out to you here is God never told Adam to name the beasts. He didn't tell him to. He brought the animals to him to see what he would name them. So what's going on here? God knows how he has created Adam. And Adam has a human brain. And it is a brain that loves to organize things, that loves to categorize things, that loves to name things. God designed Adam to be very much a scholar. And as a scholar, you don't just learn things for yourself, you learn things for others as well. And you bring that knowledge into a form that others can share. And so when God says that he named the animals and then whatever he called them, that's what they were called from that point. There's something going on here that's more than just a momentary, oh, isn't that interesting? I think I'll call you, you know, a robin. I think I'll call you a zebra. Adam is exercising his academic ability. Now, as I mentioned earlier, everything we need in life is also a source of great pleasure. Our appetite for food draws us to the banquet table. It draws us to the feast. But that feast is there for a purpose. It's there to deliver nutrition. But because God is good, getting the nutrition we need also gives us tremendous pleasure. But there's another aspect of food that we see all over the Bible, and that is that this food is not just to draw us to the banquet table. It wouldn't need to be a banquet table unless there were going to be other people drawn to the same table. 
And so we find ourselves entering into social interaction with other people as we pursue our need for nutrition. And so God turns this process with what we call a meal into an opportunity to engage with others and go closer and get closer. That's why we have our our shared meals. That's why we have a dinner table rather than TV trays and separate bedrooms all over the house. Hopefully. Hopefully. Now our appetite for for water draws us to, to drink. And, and a cup of cold water in Jesus' name is not going to be without its reward. But notice it's not just enjoyed by you, it's shared with others. And you're rewarded for sharing that cup of cold water with others and not just drinking it yourself. Do you see the implications of all of this? God is so good and so wise that the basic necessities of life become a source of tremendous pleasure for us and an opportunity to share those pleasures with others in a wholesome and morally uh, upright way. But when we separate the the pleasures that God has provided from his purposes for providing those pleasures, they become evil. When we begin to hijack a God-given appetite and turn it into an opportunity to sell poison, things that just do harm, that don't deliver, and I mean this in the very literal sense, that don't deliver the goods, then it becomes evil. And when you look at the world around you, you see institutions and organizations and associations that are all about hijacking the God-given pleasures that God has created and turning them into an opportunity to make a profit by doing harm. Now, it doesn't have to be that way, but it often is that way because we are a fallen race in a fallen world, sinning and being sinned against until the Savior comes and rescues us from that mess. Those are the kingdoms of this world, the dark, foolish, sinful kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of soft drinks, right? The kingdoms of of, uh, junk food, the, the kingdoms of alcohol, uh, all these things that could be done in a wholesome, healthy way, but they're not because it's not that profitable to do so, evidently. My point is that we get to come into that scene and, and do things better. We get to do well for ourselves by doing good for others rather than doing harm to others. So, I discovered the reality of this principle Uh, that the appetites of the mind draw us to a feast uh, in my childhood. I was 10 years old, and my mother took me to Kresge's department store, and there I met my first turtle. Have I told you guys this story yet? Okay, because I forget who I talked to. Okay, so I I go to Kresge's, and there in the... I wandered off into the pet department the way you would when you're 10 years old and your mom takes you to Kresge's. She's over in the section with cloth and stuff, you know. And so I'm over in the pet department and there's this one aquarium and it's filled with turtles. And one of the turtles was a little gray razorback turtle, ridgeback turtle, that uh, was just looking at me like he wanted to talk. Just Have you ever looked a turtle in the face? They look like they're about to say something. And you just want to, okay, go on, say it. Well, I fell in love with this turtle. And so I pleaded with my mother to buy me this turtle. 
And she did. And we got a little glass squat bowl with blue aquarium gravel. You know, ugly. Man. And a porcelain figure of a castle for some reason. Huh? You got the same one. Okay. And so, and a little, little canister of turtle food. And we take this home and I put it in my bedroom and I just, just sat there and just looked at this turtle. And then a few days later, I'm out in the woods and a box turtle is walking by. I think I've got to have this turtle and it's free. So I take it home and I've got two turtles. And then I'm down in the creek and I see a pancake turtle. One of the ones with a little pointy nose that comes up and gets a little breath of air. I got him. I taught it, brought him home. Pretty soon I've got two uh, wading pools in my backyard, one for wet environment for the, for the snapping turtles and the pancake turtles and the red-eared sliders and, and the painted turtles. And over here I've got my dry environment for my box turtles and my terrapins and my tortoises. And by the end of the summer, I'm going to shorten this story, I had 38 turtles. So this is turtle world, okay? And, and my friends are, they're not really my friends. My neighbor, the kids who live in the neighborhood, they didn't like me. So they're looking over the fence and they're seeing all these turtles crawling around and jumping and doing things. And they think, man, Greg is weird, you know? And I'm having so much fun. And so, uh, but then fall came. Well, actually, I began drawing pictures of the turtle. I began to read the encyclopedia about turtles. I began to draw pictures of the turtles I started journaling so they had a record of what they ate and their habitat and, and their dietary needs and all these kind of things. And, and uh, some of it I didn't understand, but I recorded it anyway because I just copied it out of the books. I went to the library and got as many books as I could on turtles. First, I just looked at the pictures. Then I read the captions. Finally, I started wading into the text, you know, and now I'm, I'm reading and I'm just having such a wonderful time. But then by the end of the summer, I got to turn them all loose because, you know, they have to hibernate. I'm a young herpetologist. I know these things. And so I, I had to release these turtles into the world and uh, back to my one little razorback turtle in my bedroom. Now, as I look back on that, I realize that uh, if my parents had just noticed there's something odd about Greg, he's really into turtles, you know, Maybe we should take him to the Museum of Natural History here in Dayton where they've got really big turtles and a lot of other reptiles and amphibians. Who knows what would have happened if they had just fed my delight a little bit, but they never did. They never thought of taking me to that. I found out about that as an adult later. But the story of Turtle World is an example of Psalm 111 and verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord. These are his works of creation. They are pondered by all who delight in them. And I've looked at the phrasing and the grammar of this passage, and this is the, this is the most accurate translation of this from the Hebrew. Okay? Now some people, it, it amazes me how in so many cases when they're translating a Bible verse, if they don't have any great interest in the, the consequences, they'll, they'll rearrange words and they'll use different words. But the fact is that this word delight means a deep level of processing. It's, it, delight is to your mind what delicious is to your palate. Okay? When something's delicious, you savor it. When something's delightful, you ponder it. 
You, you treasure it. You remember it. It's all about the mind. And so when people say that chocolate, for instance, is delightful, you need to say, no, it's not. Chocolate is delicious. Now, if you're interested in the molecular structure of chocolate when it is heated and turned into a chocolate bar, now that could be delightful because that's, that's the mind. But when you're talking about how it tastes, that's delicious. And we need to hang on to the accurate use of these words and don't let modern usage uh, spoil it because the word delight goes way back in history. Delight has to do with the mind. Now, all of this kind of went by the wayside for a while, but when I went to Bible college, I discovered that delight-directed study was back. And in Psalm 119, verse 16, we read, I delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. In Bible college, you have to understand, I was coming into Bible college as a high school dropout at the age of 15. I dropped out of high school and I traveled around the country and I finally came to Christ in Southern California. I went back to Ohio. I met my, my wife, Sono. We married and then God called me into the ministry. I knew I needed to go to Bible college and yet I didn't even have my high school diploma. So I had to get a GED. I had to take remedial courses at the community college in order for the Bible college to even accept my application to come to college. But once I was in Bible college, I was very intimidated. It's a small Bible college. And you know, the smaller the college, the thicker the textbooks. It's like they've got some identity uh, fears or something. And they feel like if we don't use thick textbooks, we won't be a real Bible college. And so they had really thick ones. And I was learning hermeneutics and homiletics and Koine Greek and all this stuff. And that's when I discovered this is in the Bible. My turtle world is in the Bible. It's a delight-directed study. And so I began to research this idea of delight in other places. And lo and behold, other great minds, besides my own, had found this before. So here we are, Noah Webster. In his 1828 diction, he defines delight. Now listen to this closely. As a high degree of pleasure or satisfaction of mind. A delight is a more permanent pleasure than joy and is not dependent on sudden excitement. Who thinks like this? I mean, who gets into a word like this and, and, and teases it out and distinguishes it from, from uh, all the other words? I'll tell you who. A delight-directed scholar of the English language. That's who. The only people who write dictionaries are delight-directed students. They don't just do it for the money. They love words. They savor them. They line them up and they march them out and they go to war with words. And so I continued to study and I found this guy. I'd never seen him before until I found this photo, but this is James Strong. He's the author of Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. And the reason it's called exhaustive is because the book is so heavy if you carry it around, you'll be exhausted. No, it's because it's a thorough book, right? So he noted that the Hebrew word for delight denotes pleasure related to some matter of value to the mind. I didn't make this up. This is what the word delight is all about. Now who counts 
all the times that a word shows up in the Bible and records it. And then count another word and sees how many, how many words there are like that. A delight-directed scholar of the Bible, that's who. James Strong was a delight-directed scholar of the Word of God. Now, there are others outside of the Christian community, but Marie Curie writes, All my life, through new insights of nature, made me rejoice like a child. She's a delight-directed scientist. George Washington Carver writes, I wanted to know the name of every stone and flower and insect and bird and beast. I wanted to know where it got its color, where it got its life. You see what's going on here? The great minds that we honor for all of their wonderful scholarly works are delight-directed scholars and students. They, they pursue knowledge the way this kid pursues strawberries because they're delicious to the mind. So our appetites are, appetites are God-given, and we don't want to ruin any of these appetites with junk food. Now, when you look at a snack, what you're seeing is a combination of fat and sugar and salt, and occasionally sprinkled in some raisins in order to salve your conscience. But snacks... Snacks between meals not only fail to deliver the goods of nutrition. See, that's one thing. They also weaken our appetite for what really is good. So, for instance, the problem with television is not necessarily what's on television. It's what doesn't happen in our lives when the television is on. That's the problem. Now, nowadays, it is the content as well, obviously. But even if it was all leave it to beaver, it's the problem of what doesn't happen in your life when you are satisfying your appetite for knowledge by imbibing in mere entertainments. So we have a God-given mental appetite for knowledge and understanding, but this appetite manifests itself as boredom. And if you want to know how true that is, then think about the last time you went to a doctor's office or a dental office and your appointment was for some reason delayed. You know, somebody else in there had a big problem and the doctor couldn't get to you as soon as they thought they would. And you're sitting in the waiting room and you're waiting and you wish you'd, you know, nowadays we've got our smartphones, so this doesn't happen very often. But let's say you forgot to bring your phone and you're sitting there and you don't have anything to read and you look over at the coffee table and there's all these magazines they can hardly give away. Okay, they're just, these are just the, the ones you wonder, who subscribes to these magazines? Only doctors and dentists, so they can put them into their, their uh, waiting room. And so you sit there, you look over at that, and you go, oh man, no way. And then you just sit there a little longer. And then your eye goes back over to the pile, and you go, well, okay. And so you pick up a, a copy of Cook's um, What's it say? Illustrated. Cook's Illustrated, which is kind of a highbrow, you know, random articles about all kinds of weird things. Now, I mean, until you get into it. And what happens is you stumble upon an article, uh, article about coral reefs and what's happening to coral reefs around the world and, and how pollution is affecting them. And you see pictures of before and after. 
And you're going, wow, this is really interesting. And you're drawn in, and your mind is like munching on this article. And pretty soon, there's a little fire kindled in your mind, and it's starting to become voracious. And you're wanting to know more. You might end up going to the library afterwards and looking up coral reefs and checking out a book. You see, what's happening is once a delight is, is established in your mind, it wants to be fed. So it's not just a delight in knowledge in general. We have a tendency to get into some specific area of interest, and then we want to go deep with that. And that's the way a delight-directed study works. And that's why it's so useful when you want to harness it. So just as hunger is the best sauce for getting people to eat the food that's in front of them, so boredom is the best sauce for enjoying an educational feast. And rather than rushing to satisfy a child's boredom with any and everything that will make them feel better, instead, we harness this appetite, we use this appetite to draw them to the feast of what is good rather to the, to the junk food snacks that satisfy the momentary boredom but don't deliver any long-term value. Now, this tree is remarkable, as you can see, and it is the result of very careful pruning and wiring and bending in order to create this amazing Japanese maple. Alexander Pope is quoted as saying, as the twig is bent, so grows the tree. And we are constantly either bending the twigs of our children or allowing others to bend their twigs. And the results can be frightening. So we want to beware of what we allow to become a delight in childhood. Because a delight has staying power. A delight doesn't go away. And that same kid has got a future. Okay, and we need to be aware of that and, and do something intelligent about it. Now, as the twig is bent, so grows the tree. Here's a couple of kids playing with a Lego robotics kit. Just having a great time. And they too have a future. You see... We are bending the twigs of our children's minds, touching their palates, and the result is going to be a, a future that's either a blessing or a frustration. Now, in Proverbs 22 and verse 6, we have one of the most famous passages in the Bible about child training. And it says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, this phrase, train up, is actually the word chanak in Hebrew. You get to clear your throat a lot in Hebrew. Chanak. And chanak is only found in two places. In this verse, and in the verse that talks about the dedication of Solomon's temple. And in both cases, it is a phrase or a word that actually means touch the palate. So what's going on here? Well, any of you ladies who have ever uh, raised a, a child, had a baby, you know that there's a point in that child's life where they're needing to go on to solid foods, but not too solid, right? 
We want that child to have just the right amount of uh, ease of digestion. They're not, they don't have any teeth. They're not going to chew it. So who's going to chew it for them? Well, in all the cultures around the world, it's usually mom. And what would happen when, when this phrase, uh, touch the palate of a child, is, is used in the Hebrew context, they understood it to mean that you chew it very carefully first. And then you reach into your own mouth and take a dab of what you are currently enjoying. And you touch that to the palate of your baby. And the baby gets first contact. First contact. Touch the palate of a child in the way that he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. You see, children love the foods that touch their palate. They are the first foods. And they develop a taste for those foods. Now, I grew up in a family where southern fried cooking was the norm. Chicken fried steak, fried okra, fried uh, green tomatoes, fried catfish, fried hush puppies. You name it, they fried it. And I ate it. My dad was from Alabama. Now, when I met my wife, my first wife, Sono, she's a second-generation American-born Japanese, and her food looks more like this. And I'm thinking, honey, that's raw. Don't your people know how to cook? Haven't you discovered fire? <laughs> she didn't think that was funny. Um, but we, we all long for the foods that have touched our palates as a child. I wanted southern fried cooking. She wanted uh, sashimi and sushi and things like that. And so we had to negotiate a truce. You know, I, she cooked for me, and I, I enjoyed some of what we would have at her parents' house, and she would cook that for herself as well, and I learned over time. But the point I'm wanting to make is that train up a child in the way he should go is putting all of your focus on how you introduce something. Because in the way you should go is not just talking about food. It's talking about your attitude toward life. All the things that make for the godly life. Touch your child's palate in that way. Now, the challenge is going to be to make each student's first contact with any activity or topic as positive as possible. And we can do this best by enjoying the topic ourselves first. And then sharing what we have been metaphorically chewing on with our student with an authentic enthusiasm. You see, enthusiasm is contagious. It's like a mental sneeze. Just not as gross. Now, so the question then is, what do you want your children to love? Think about it. What would you like your children to love? Well, what have you been chewing on? that is worth sharing with others, sharing with them. You know, if you want your children to love prayer, you won't get it by saying, have you prayed yet? You don't have breakfast till you've prayed, young man. You get back up there to your bedroom and you pray. And then you can come down and have breakfast. Now, I know I'm sounding like a southern somebody, or a, I'm sorry to all the southerners I'm offending, but... 
That attitude is out there. And a lot of kids go, man, I do you think they're really praying up there in their bedroom when you do that? But what happens if you, if you allow them to catch you praying? To come upon you and you're on your knees and you're just enjoying the presence of the Lord. And you notice that they're there and you go, oh, come on, come, come over and come kneel beside me here. Let's pray together. Let's go before, what do you, what's in your heart that you want to talk to God about? I just love to spend time in his presence praying. And so if you touch the palate of your child with a taste of your own delight in prayer, you can raise up a child who loves to pray because it's like their first taste of something good. Likewise, if you touch the palate of your child with your own taste for Bible study, your delight in Bible study, you can raise up a child who loves to read God's word who loves to memorize God's word, who loves to quote God's word. If you touch the palate of your children with your own taste, your own delight in church attendance, and I I call it church attendance here because it, it involves all kinds of things, the worship service and so on, the listening to the word of God preached, the fellowship with other believers, You can't impart that to your child effectively if you're not chewing on it first, enjoying it first. And then out of your enthusiasm for it, you touch their palate. Touch the palate of your child with a taste of your own delight in service toward others. When you go and do something, take them with you. Let them experience the joy of seeing someone else's need being met by some sacrifice that you are making together as a family. Touch the palate of your children with a taste of your own delight in hospitality. Benjamin Franklin said that he got most of his education from just listening to the dinner table guests. His father would just bring them in one at a time and talk about all the great issues of the day, and he goes on to become the ultimate Renaissance man. Now, we have something else. There's something more. We have another appetite that's very important. And that is loneliness. Loneliness is our social appetite. So don't waste this appetite either. Use it wisely. Because you see, the only thing more powerful than a delight-directed study is a delight-directed study with a small group of fellow enthusiasts. One or two other people who are just as delighted as you are about the topic and who then begin to leapfrog over one another in pursuit of excellence in that area of study. And that's what makes a writer's group so effective. This is how you get excellence. You get a couple of kids or young people or adults together who are delighted in the topic, for instance, of writing, and they begin to pursue it with joy. Again, he who walks with the wise becomes wise. But be careful because this social appetite can be satisfied with social junk food. And so the local gang is more than willing to touch your child's palate with the use of drugs, alcohol, 
violence. You look at this girl over here to the side. Doesn't she look like the devil incarnate? Man. A companion of fools will suffer harm. So when we pursue the pleasures of God in ways that honor his purposes for those pleasures, they become both beneficial and life-giving. Boredom and loneliness are two God-given appetites. One is is an appetite for knowledge and understanding, and the other is an appetite for social contact with others, connecting with others, knowing others. And these two appetites can deliver great pleasure to us when they are satisfied as God intended, and he intended them to be satisfied in delighting in the mighty and great works of the Lord. So think of boredom and loneliness as two mighty oxen that can draw anyone into a delight-directed feast of learning with a few fellow enthusiasts. So we could harness up these oxen, oxen and get them to pull Now, one classic story of how delight-directed study and the power of companionship have succeeded historically is in the story of this young man. His name is Homer Hickam, and what a perfect name for this story. He is a boy growing up in a coal miner's town in West Virginia at the time when the Sputnik satellite flew over and the world was in awe and in fear that the Russians were winning the space race. And Homer looked up into the sky and he said out loud, I want to build a rocket. And his friend said, okay, we'll help you. And so the rocket boys were born. Now these young men went on to form a rocket club in a coal mining town in West Virginia. They were laughed at They finally recruited one of their high school teachers to take them seriously, and she helped them get some books on rocket science. Because in this situation, it really was rocket science. And they began to practice making, they got an engineer in the coal mine to help them build the flanges that they need in order for the fuel of the rocket to come out of the end of the rocket in the right way so it would go in the air, not, not explode. Over time, they got to the point where they could take their rockets to the state science fair and they won. And then from the state science fair, they went to the national science fair. And they won. And then Homer Hickam himself went on to join NASA and help to put a man on the moon. It's an amazing story. But this story is repeated over and over again. We just don't have the eyes to see it. Everyone studies. The mind is hungry. It will study. I've had so many people come to me when, in my homeschooling workshops and say, but my son won't study. Well, what does he do with his free time? All he wants to do is learn to ride that stupid skateboard. He's just practicing and practicing, and then he gets together with his friends to show them what he's learned since they got together last. And I'm wondering, can you hear what you're saying? He's studying He's studying skateboarding. Everybody studies. These these scholars are presenting their work for peer review. They're very serious about what they do. And this cycle of preparing to present 
to our fellow enthusiasts is a powerful routine that allows us to gain high proficiency in every area of our studies. Historically, this is where excellence comes from. You might recognize these guys if you look closely. This is just five of what we know as the inklings. And you see C.S. Lewis sitting there uh, second from the from the right. Now, the seven inklings include Owen Barfield, G.K. Chesterton, Dorothy Sayers, George MacDonald, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, and C.S. Lewis. These are some of the greatest authors from a Christian worldview. I can't say they're all Christians, but like Dorothy Sayers was definitely a Christian. George MacDonald, definitely a Christian. C.S. Lewis, definitely a Christian. J.R.R. Tolkien, strong Catholic, but they seem to have a, a love for God. G.K. Chesterton, <laughs> who knows? He was brilliant. But the point is, these guys are meeting in the back of a pub and sharing their work with one another and welcoming critique from one another. They didn't necessarily like one another's works, but there's some pretty interesting things that uh, came out of this. I love this one line. One of the uh, chroniclers of this whole process says, Without J.R.R. Tolkien, we might never have heard of C.S. Lewis. But without Lewis, we might never have heard of Tolkien. Isn't that beautiful? Do you want your kids to go on to accomplish something excellent? It may not be world famous, but just excellence. Then I highly recommend to you the power of delight-directed study with a small group of fellow enthusiasts. It might look like a speech and debate club. It might look like a music group. It might look like a theater troupe. It might be the 4-H club. It could be a journalism club. I love this picture, 1960 journalism club. These people went on to make history in journalism over the course of their lifetimes. It might be an art club. It might be an athletic club. I could keep going on and on, but the point is you can make your home a place of delight directed study and instruction for everyone. And by reaching out and drawing some fellow enthusiasts into the picture, you find that it even becomes more powerful. So whether it's a biking club or a language club or a Bible study or a preacher's institute or a cooking and baking club or a garden club or a historical society or a political action group, why not host a group of fellow enthusiasts? You know, these are examples of how the principle of more than enough that I started out with in this series operates in Christ's kingdom. We overflow into the lives of others by pursuing the satisfaction of our own needs and desires under the Lordship of Christ. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the way and see. Ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. Never underestimate the goodness and the wisdom of God's old path way of 
doing things in the kingdom of God. It may not be easy. We've lost our institutional memory. We have to regain some of the things that have gotten lost. But it's true, and it works, and so you there you have it. Psalm 111 and verse 2, Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. And once we understand this, it just keeps multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you as you're so good and so wise and in this wonderful path of life, you shed your word on it in such a way that we can walk in the light of your word. Lord, I pray that in the weeks to come as we get into 1 Thessalonians, that, Lord, we'll be delighted in studying that book together and that we will ponder it, that we will treasure it, we will memorize it, we will gather as groups of fellow enthusiasts to enjoy the sweetness of your word. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.